0: This is Speaking of Shakespeare, conversations about things Shakespearean. I'm Thomas Dabbs, broadcasting from Aoyamagakuin University in central Tokyo. This talk is with Alexa Alice Jobin, professor of English, George Washington University. We will begin with her perspectives in her recent book, Shakespeare and East Asia, and also explore her recent publications in gender and race studies. Alexa's work often takes her into film criticism, and this talk includes several film clips, which unfortunately cannot be seen by those of you joining us through an audio podcast, so please accept our apologies in advance. This series is funded with support from the Aoyamagakuin University Institute of the Humanities, and also with a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Alexa, welcome back to the program. It is so good to see you again.
1: Likewise. Really good to see you again,
0: Tom. Um, when we last talked, that was roughly two years ago, almost exactly two years ago. And your book, uh, Shakespeare in East Asia, had just come out, I believe, or was about to come out. But we were talking about your book. And one point I want to make, we do focus a lot on recent uh, publications. Uh, and in, in the popular world, two years may seem a long time. In our world, it is it is, uh, it is a long shelf life. And everything you have said in this book uh, is still active, pertinent, and out there. And, of course, we recommend anyone out there who's interested in East Asian studies and Shakespeare, you know, and any of those things to, to take a look at it if they haven't gotten to it already. I have used your book in two articles that I've written recently, as a form of defense now i want you first i'll tell you about that in just a second i don't want to talk too much i'll i want you first to just give us a little overview of shakespeare in east asia and maybe some of the feedback that you've gotten in the past couple of years
1: so um this is the book shakespeare in east asia from oxford and what i wanted to do in writing this book is to bring the discussion about Shakespeare and performance on film and adaptation to a new level. I paid special attention to race and gender in it. Uh, I primarily focused on adaptations that came out after 1950s. I covered Japan, Korea, China, the Sinophone world, which includes Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau, and Singapore. So a bit of diasporic context, but also, but so significantly placed a tour to the UK and Europe, primarily UK, that's my coverage. Mm -hmm. Um, So traveling performances, what happens to say Ninagawa, who's perceived to be actually a little bit foreign, Kurosawa as well, Mm -hmm. um, in their home country. And yet, when they travel outside of Japan, they are invariably seen as some kind of cultural representative, a diplomat of Mm -hmm. Japan. It's very ironic. So pay attention Mm -hmm. to these kind of crevices. Um, But you will note that the book is called Shakespeare and East Asia. So it's not just works from or in East Asia, but rather how... Modern directors interact with Shakespeare, but also Asian motifs. So I even Mm -hmm. cover, say, Michael Almarida, whose famous Hamlet is set in 2000 uh, New York in Manhattan. But there are actually plenty of Asian motifs in there that have often flown under the radar. So it works like this that I'm interested in, this interaction, this spider-like web of mutual influence and inspiration.
0: Yeah, the spider being the central image to Kurosawa's uh, Macbeth, uh, in the Japanese title, uh, the spider, uh, the spider web castle, uh, but that didn't work. It's thrown, thrown of blood in in our reading, uh, and I'll tell you now where I used you, and I also used Adele Lee and her book on uh, uh, East Asia, China, and Japan in particular is that I was uh, uh, kind of under pressure a little bit from an editor who sort of wanted to frame the Asian. We're doing adaptation, recent adaptations of Shakespeare in Japan and uh, off the mainstream mainly, uh, in terms of theater, in terms of, um, uh, new media, we looked into that. And I have, uh, I worked with two, uh, Japanese women who are scholars and professors, or, well, one, a graduate student, the other professor who really know this stuff and helped, uh, mine out the recent stuff. And I, I got the feeling from the editor that she wanted me to stick this into the, um, colonial, post-colonial, Uh, kind of bracket when we're talking about Japan. And the point is, in your book, you point out that Japan has its own colonial history. And Adele also uh, points that out. And so I could use you guys as sort of amulets to protect uh, me from looking like a uh, maybe a little bit too conservative, if that makes sense, and just say, listen... When we go from country to country in Asia, we're going through vastly different cultures in many cases with vastly different histories. So we can't really uh, capture them in, in one theoretical uh, nice little tidy square box. And you show that in your writing, you're very good at uh, at uh, uh, remarking upon and noticing the difference as you just did with uh, Kurosawa and uh, Ninagawa.
1: I suppose it's, it's it's this relativism that is difficult to capture. Most people want to when they hear of global Shakespeare or there's a Japanese style Shakespeare performance, they will go tell me, um, what does cherry blossom mean? This must be very Japanese, isn't it? In fact, the you know Gawa's particular use of cherry blossom or no or Kurosawa's use of no inspired uh, no mask inspired facial makeup. Um, might seem Japanese, but actually it's a quite innovative, countering a lot of traditions, there's nothing essentially Japanese in it, even if from a touring perspective, people think that must represent Japan. In Japan, they have cherry blossom motifs on stage all the time. Um, and it's achingly beautiful, but actually overlooking that represents death. Um, so it's exactly things like yes. this. That it's, it's rich, but also easily falling through um, in the cultural misunderstanding. And, and, and global Shakespeare gives us a very, very concrete case. It's difficult to talk about cross-cultural differences and similarities or globalization, unless you have something concrete. And here you have enough variables, but also an umbrella that's kind of providing enough coherence for a meaningful study, because that umbrella being, being Shakespeare's place.
0: Yeah, and it's very complex when we throw upon theories of adaptation, which you've been uh, working with for some years now, uh, going further back to the ethics of appropriation. Uh, there's necessarily some appropriation that uh, that just has to be done uh, when you move from culture to culture, and it's delightful. And then there are other types of appropriation, which, of course, we find to be... Um, uh, retrograde to our um, uh, progressive way of thinking. But uh, in Japan in particular, uh, what I've seen from uh, critics like you and others uh, uh, is a strong recognition of understanding that I don't think the Japanese felt under pressure to to bend to the will of the Western iconic Shakespeare. From the beginning, they were fusing it with uh, various things. And there are a lot of conflicts within within Japan about what theater should do. Shakespeare also, um, which in fact are more interesting. And then, as you point out, when you have someone who is an international sort and he brings it back to the international scene sometimes you may lose a sense you know you may gain a a, a, what you were just saying a um a skewed sense of what the actual culture is you know they may be in in fact uh contributing to certain cultural stereotypes that uh, unfairly perhaps uh, although it's just brilliant stuff uh, these directors that you've uh, uh mentioned now you were born in taiwan And here we have young Alexa reading in Mandarin, Charles and Mary Lamb's, we probably should say Mary and Charles Lamb, I I suspect she had far more, but you know, traditionally it's Charles and Mary Lamb's uh, adaptation uh tales from shakespeare and that's where this young at that time girl schoolgirl, fell in love with this shakespeare guy in mandarin chinese and that led you to germany to study and then eventually to stanford and then eventually to become an american citizen where you were at george washington university what's more american than that in washington dc and uh i I wanted our audience to know that uh, this is an extraordinary thing and it all is prompted by shakespeare
1: it is. And I should also mention, and then I went on to um, 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 a um, research study leave to London, thanks to the Fulbright. So Fulbright oh, is yeah. an in- exchange program. And, and so in a way, I was representing the United States as an American cultural ambassador to the UK. <laughs>
0: um,
1: That's right. London, Of course, where Shakespeare worked. And it was eye opening, of course. I, I saw of how course. people negotiate similar topics, similar motifs issues with the English language. but of course in the British English they had very different vocabulary and ways to think about, for example race or differences. And um, that too was I, I brought everything I learned in my Fulbright year back to Washington DC um, to enlighten my students. So this world um, worldwide journey and tours in a way enabled, fueled by by Shakespeare, not not for me as an Asian woman to admire this dead old white man, but rather this collection of works that go under that name. Shakespeare, for me, is a much broader umbrella than one person. It represents creativity of early modern England, primarily centered in London, how those works then have a huge afterlife all over the world. allowing people who look like me to to, to access them. So so I'm seeing the beautiful diversity and variety within. If you look at the stories, of course, I've long said, it's actually very global in nature. Um, That has only been noted by scholarship starting in late 20th century. Oh, Shakespeare, of course, claims to be English, but actually has always been interested in all things global, his Englishness is always defined in opposition to, in opposition to other identities, Italianness, for example, or what Welsh meant.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what the that's that's where you get into uh, race and also uh, the interest in East Asia Asia fusions. When there, there's so much of this material in Shakespeare, and we've had other guests who just say when something happens in the contemporary world, they almost automatically think of a, a scene or a play in Shakespeare where there's a a, a crossover, a large crossover, and uh, how the language in Shakespeare. Uh, mediates certain conflicts that are, um, in several cases, uh, race-based and many things. You said in a prior conversation with me uh, that you didn't realize that you were uh, Asian until you uh, came to America where you were suddenly Asian American. Now, how does that work?
1: Uh, it's an interesting process you begin to realize oh you have a race you're assigned something and it's supposed to mean something there's this burden that comes with it for example have to prove yourself uh, try to get rid of your accent Uh for example in order to communicate clearly in a classroom because i'm entering into a teaching profession um on the flip side uh Around the time of the pandemic, this Black Lives Matter movement and all this important decolonizing movement is beginning. And um, that's where I I like to say that my identity um, has been invisible and visible um, in various contexts, neither of which is particularly particularly reparative. Sometimes I don't like to be visible. You can be visible in the wrong way what I mean, um, or invisible, when you feel like you're wrong, but because you're invisible, people don't, don't see it, don't understand it. They, they don't appreciate what happened to you. Uh-huh. Um, so this visibility and invisibility of your cultural identity is, is really, really an issue, especially when you're an immigrant. Um, so closer to um, around the time of the pandemic, I'm beginning to realize as well, that being this label of Asianness um, is forcing us to do certain work. For example, you're expected to be a spokesperson for certain issues. I, I have spoken at large, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to address the issues, not representing whole communities, but at least to contributing my personal perspectives, especially the terrible um mass shooting in Atlanta of Asian women, for example, that was during the pandemic, that inspired a number of articles that I wrote subsequently to address racial justice, um, invisibility of racial identities. Um, So that's just one of the many examples of how you are expected to perform because you're expected to then represent or perhaps to have an interest In Asian American material or perhaps incorporate that into the classroom. Fortunately, my teaching has already always already been very global. So it's not entirely new thing, but I do feel the stress more when institutions they all begin to this is the US context for our uh, for our audiences who yeah. begin have to begin to have more investment especially after the pandemic in what is known here as DEI diversity equity and inclusiveness they have offices on these topics they will hold workshops and so honestly I feel like um, I told my students we, we, they're, they're very uncomfortable talking about race because I, I have a predominantly white classroom yeah. but that's the problem women's studies is not for women for example it's actually for everyone to 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 come and think about all these issues human rights issues similarly race study is not really for people of color we, we, we think about this every day already in fact those who, who don't often have an opportunity to discuss. And that's for you, I always tell them. So don't feel like perhaps you don't have a stake in it. Um, you don't have, you, you don't feel entitled to speak up. Um, that's very often the issue. Or more negatively, feeling like anything you say will be wrong. This is this is not targeting particular individuals. It's at on many levels, it's always. Systemic systemic injustice that we're addressing is yeah. the structure, the the habitual way we think. So that that's what I tell them. Um, and that's just a quick rumination of, of what race meant to me in my journey after coming to the U.S.
0: Yeah, and part of this narrative is in some ways the path to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh that you know that, that people sort of miss it that uh by classifying you as a minority in the American society uh affording you uh equity and making sure but by classifying everyone as Asian erasing very distinct cultural identities that are very Different. Uh, Of course, I'm in Japan. Nobody identifies as Korean or as Chinese or as um, being from Indonesia or, you know, and it it would be sort of like classifying me hmm, in some ways, it it kind of is this way as a Western Hemispherean. You know, in my position in a Japanese university, well, you're uh, part of Western Hemisphere and studies. And anytime we need to learn something more about the Western Hemisphere, we're going to bring you in. I, I don't know anything about Argentina. Uh, I mean, uh, beyond, you know, what, you know, just Evita, you know, kind of thing. And uh, so, um and we've talked about this before, but here we are. I'm born in a country crossroads uh, before you, uh, in uh, South Carolina, in a and let's just face it, a very liberal time in a, in American history, particularly in the South. And here's Shakespeare, and that takes me eventually onto the to the other side of the globe. You know where I've been here for 25 years. You cross. Cross Shakespeare and Mandarin and you end up on the other side of the globe somewhere else. And it just seems just tied that way. And it just, it, it's a portal through which not just a portal, there's this raw material that we've used to mediate these cultures that we've had to adapt to in our lives. And I, I find that you do that extraordinarily well in your writing on, on race and so forth. It's a very difficult thing
1: in in the conclusion of my book co-written with the wonderful Martin Orkin a post-colonial yeah. theorist yeah. Um, who has unfortunately since passed away since we retracted last time um, I'm sorry to hear that I didn't know that this, uh, yeah um he has some scattered notes um I wrote a number of chapters but for these chapters he drafted halfway with notes I I ghost wrote in some way yeah um, to to, in, to fuse together the voices. He's originally from South Africa, but based in Israel. So he himself has very a very global trajectory in his personal life, but also professional life. And in the final chapter, toward the end, I asked a provocative a question about disowning race. If race is a central part of human identity, can we own or disown our race? Um, apparently. We can't. We no longer do blackface. It is. It is seen as cultural appropriation. There's no blackface Othello mm-hmm. as Lawrence One hundred
0: percent agreement is. on that. Yes, right,
1: because he's trying to own somebody else's identity. Yes, it's authenticity questions. But when I pose the question, it's more philosophical. Like, um, can I go around? and say, I want to drop the Asian label. I don't want to necessarily be always asked where you're from, where you're really from. Do you like rice? You know, that kind of thing. So it's in that vein, I ask, can we disown race? Can one day our society come to what I call post-racial society? We are a long way from there. But if, keep, if we keep discussing race in a canonical work like Shakespeare, we might get there faster. That's
0: yes. Hard. Yes. I fully agree with you. And we've talked about this before. I get asked pretty often and uh, I don't want to equate my experience with yours is far different. And, um, Uh, Yeah, there is some bit when you are a foreign national in uh, Japan, there is a there's a bit of othering. You you see it, you know, and and you're asked where you're from and nobody wants to know where you live in Tokyo when they ask you where you're from. They want to know what country and then they may want to know what section, you know, what state in the case of the U.S. That's it feels like it happens every day here, probably more like once a week, but it happens all the time and i have a colleague who gets a little uh, testy uh who's he's a foreign national and he gets a little testy i'm from, you know he says i'm from this area in tokyo where i've lived for 30 years and that doesn't go over well I, and i just if you let it get to you then you do nothing but keep this the post racial moments that we hope for in the future from happening. You know, all all the person asking you sees is somebody who gets a little fussy with them. And they're, again, just being well-intended, you know, asking you questions. But yeah, I'm sure you still get asked that in in the States. Like, where are you really from?
1: It's really a double-edged sword. You know, some activists actually promote recognition and solidarity for, for them. This label is important. Yeah. It's you have to keep claiming blackness, for example, the, yeah. the 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 core of the cultural meaning of Othello lies very much in his moorishness. You can't say, um, let's do an Othello where he is white, for example. So so that's one school of thinking where, where post-racial may sound utopic, but it's problematic because it's a form of erasure. There's, yeah. of course there there are other schools of thinking in terms of race in terms of equality if we if we don't mark race do we not have racial problems um my my husband is french so the example from france is that they they, they they've sort of tried to erase race uh, after the second world war um uh, yeah. due to the then government collaboration with the nazis in giving up the jews and and they were able to do that because they have very good Um, bureaucratic systems of categorization. So they know exactly who's who.
0: Um,
1: And after that, of course, the public um, and the government became very uncomfortable with this kind of human categorization process. So so their bureaucratic forms don't have the box of race, unlike here in the U.S. And that means they also don't have, they don't have a census in the U.S. every 10 years, there's a U.S. census. They don't have this. So they don't actually know precisely the, the proportion in the population of, of, of racial diversity. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to that, right? Solidarity, distribution of resources, legislation. If you don't know the stat, does that imply you don't care, perhaps, and you don't feel like you need to address the problem? So it's just a, a form. There's a huge debate. Is, is this is this just a habit of brushing things under the carpet? Um, and and so I think about that every day. Do, do we categorize things? It's it's the norm here in the U.S. to categorize. You go to any any school, school district, universities, colleges they can tell you um, the percentage of how many black students we have, um, Latino, Asian, Americans, and so on. Um, and that's a very important important figure of diversity. Um, to, it's, 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 it's a way they measure how, yeah. how good they're doing, right? Yeah. Um, so I can see that. On the flip side, of course, this the risk of diversity stopping right there. We have a statistic, chalk it up, we are done. And, and
0: that's yeah. highly problematic as well. Yeah, it can be very problematic uh, in trying to do the right thing. Let's say this. Let's say we were talking about uh, um, someone in Taipei, a, a theater troupe, or someone in Tokyo, or whatever, wanting to do Othello. And they're not being—now, uh, you know, I'm sure you can find people with darker skin— in those cultures right and yet they would still not identify as black necessarily in terms of um of whether black african or african-american uh, and i wonder about that is it is it possible to get around the um that in in asian shakespeare for instance
1: yeah, I think this is a topic that has been under-discussed uh, in the US, unfortunately, discussion primarily focused on Anglo-American context, maybe paying a little bit attention to Canada with primer, um, prime examples coming from the UK. Um, but very little attention has been paid to race in Asian Shakespeare. Um, in fact, in China and in Minagawa's productions in Japan, There there have been, even in the early 21st century, a couple of what we might call blackface Othello. So you have Chinese actors, Japanese actors, and they would uh, would use makeup to darken their skin. Uh, I'm sure it would be hugely problematic in the American-British context, but... Slavery as well as Blackness have different connotations within East Asia. And I suspect that is why it's practiced and it's been accepted. We're talking about localized productions with Japanese character names and and settings, for example. But it's not unusual to see things like that. I wanted to, in my next project, to collect as many such examples as possible to do systematic yeah. um, analysis as well, reception. But from my preliminary research, there's no uproar in reception. In terms yeah. of, it. they will use the word, use the phrase blackface. Actually, they don't even use that. They don't perceive it as blackface. So it's interesting. That's in parallel to whitening up, right? And in East Asian tradition, you would see um, stage productions where characters were, were prosthetic noses to make the noses higher to imitate quite Caucasian facial features. Yeah. Um, is that From a form of whitewashing, um I don't think the Anglo-American vocabulary should automatically apply in this context because, because um the the difference is so huge in cultural perception of of my Yeah.
0: Well this is a good segue because we're talking about uh acting and how you know in some ways the uh, we all agree, in, uh, certainly in the Western American context, this blackface thing, uh, just uh, it, it just ties in with some horrible uh, moments in uh, Western history and in appropriation. However, an actor challenged to play a role, let's say a young boy challenged to play uh, a female role in Shakespeare, and this brings you, which is a, you know, a form of of this sort of thing, adapting another role. And as always, you uh there's this strain of optimism which i love in your work but this brings us to the trans historical and your article about performing reparative transgender identities uh, from stage beauty to the king king and the crown which introduced me to some stuff that i didn't know about and thank you but let's talk about that the the reparative idea and using the transgendered uh, and in this case there's a shakespearean context also
1: Yes. Um, so I have been researching this topic. Um, some perceived to be an offshoot topic since I wrote the book Race. Um, editors started asking me, you, you wrote about race. Can you, uh, can you do something with gender, particularly the Ladies' frontier, transgender theory? Mm-hmm. And so to give our audiences a quick snapshot, Transgender studies is basically a set of theories to look at gender practices from a fresh perspective. It's not about what um, is traditionally known as so-called cisgender versus transgender. Cisgender would be characters and people who identify with the identity assigned to them at birth. Mm -hmm. A boy, a girl, they happen to be happy and they grow up to become a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so trans is more complex. It com- covers a lot of things. It's not necessarily people who don't identify with identity given to them. You see that the, the assignment is important. It's an imposition, social imposition So you, yeah. you are X. These people are uncomfortable. They don't agree with that. And so there's a lot of struggle, legal struggle as well. Um, some of them take a more binary journey to become who they are. Uh-huh. And to they strive for acceptance, social acceptance. Like they grow yeah. up to be women or to be men, and they want to be seen as such. So yes. um there's also people who are non-binary. So it's not always a binary journey. Um non-binary, they they feel more fluid, and we call that gender fluid um, characters for people. And if begin to think about Shakespearean comedies, you realize there are a lot of characters who are like this. Sometimes binary journey, but more often than not, fluid, because in Shakespeare's times, only boy actors, it's all female, all all male troops, right? On the professional stage, boy actors would take on the so-called female women's parts. Yeah. And a lot of these young heroines, they often have to present as someone else for, for safe passage, for employment, sometimes for mischief, think 12 Night*, Midsummer night Dream, um, as you like it, so many of these plays. And that's where trans theories really come in, because um, the traditional understanding is the um, now problematic word cross-dressing. Cross-dressing would mean that Viola in 12th night, um, a young noble woman uh, presents as an eunuch, Cesario. cross-dressing. Mm-hmm. It, it presupposes, presupposes binary pose. But if you look very closely at the play text, but also many performances, Cesario is actually uh, non-binary, perhaps a trans man, uh, especially interesting. At the end of 12th night, what happens? Cesario talks about maids, weeds, Antonio would retrieve them, but never, never changes into them. Yeah. Um, the Duke hints at double wedding, never happens, never happens the, the, the jolly dance, all that is added as the extra textual material by modern productions that, that are more used to a form of binary thinking, a form of, uh, clarity, false clarity, just tell me how it ends. They want closure. Um, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night does not afford this closure. Now, trans theory is very good at dealing with, with ambiguity, with stories that don't necessarily have a binary closure. And so I find it particularly useful to analyze these characters and to rethink what for, you know, since the 1990s and front by feminism, the field of Shakespeare studies has habitually thought of as cross dressing or the practice of having boy actors perform. Mm-hmm. Um, there are forerunners uh, to admire and uh, highlight works of uh, scholars such as Simon Chess, who um, wrote a whole book on this topic and, and, and has been talking about the so called trans residue of the so called boy actors. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the understanding is that the boy actors, when they grow up, Who do they become? Assumption is uh, of course they become adult actors, not necessarily according to her research. So they carry this trans residue into their adult personal life and professional life. Mm -hmm. They they may be fluid or or non-binary. So this binarism really is introduced by modern scholarship that that, that runs the risk of misunderstanding the true nature of early modern practices, but also of those plays like I mentioned, like Twelfth Night. Let's look at what I wrote about here, the reparative transgender identities. When I say the word reparative, I meant that if we apply a transgender lens, it's socially reparative, meaning that it's restorative for the characters, to us, to, to historical accuracy. And one of the adaptations I looked at, it's stage beauty. Um, it is sometimes known as Shakespeare in Love Light, because it's about restoration era theater. So it's a movie about theater making. And the most famous adult boy actor of the time, this is a historical figure, the famous acting, Ned Kinista. He's very well known for his performance of Othello's wife, Desdemona. And he sometimes presents as feminine offstage as well. This is Nat Kniston after the show In a Carriage with Two Female Fans.
2: Both of us were rather wondering if you were, really, well, a gentleman. But you see, my father's a wig maker. He says you're much too beautiful to be a gentleman. He says you must be a woman. And my mother's good friend, the Earl of Lauderdale, says if (laughs) you're a man, you don't have a gentleman's thingy. He says you're like those Italian singers. What's it? Castrati. The Earl says they cut off your castrati at birth. Then you become a woman. I take it the Earl of Lauderdale is not a surgeon. No, he's an Earl. Well. How then may we prove to both your father and your mother's special friend that I do indeed have a thingy? A big, bulging orb and scepter of a thingy. Well, I. I, I think, Peter.
1: We've just seen Mr. Keniston, still dressed as Desdemona, fresh from the stage, is taken for a ride by two noble women who are his fans. In the carriage, they pose the eternal question, the question a lot of people want to ask but felt it wrong to ask or perhaps are too shy to say to trans individuals about their anatomy. This is some misuse of the anatomy for indexical value. If you have a thingy, you must be... Um, if you don't have a thingy, you are not quote, qualified to be a gentleman. What Gnestin is, is a mystery in the film. In fact, his second lover, Maria, toward the end of the film makes a point of asking him, so what are you now? He winks with showing pleasure um, through her eyes, but also to the camera. I don't know. Perhaps the point is rather, we as the audience, we all have been too uh, inquisitive, like the two ladies. Um, It's not our business to know. Perhaps it's not relevant. Perhaps it's neither. Perhaps it depends on his mood. It's rather like people ask me, what is your favorite Shakespeare play? Um, And sometimes I feel like, Today, my favorite is Hamlet, you see. So it's, it's for me, gender practices, very much like all cultural practices, all the things we do in life, it's contextual. It's, it's a, it has to do, it's temporal as well. Time of day, context, um, how we um, think about how we present ourselves. So my goal is to make to, to make people not only rethink race, but rethink gender in a similar way. Right? When people ask about gen- your gender, gender. Um, there are many different shades, different shades of femininity. Am I going on a date? Am I giving a formal presentation? Um, just uh, run around the neighborhood. Um, so how you present yourself to the world varies according to the context. So that's the gist of what uh, I'm, I'm I'm trying to talk about in this in this essay. And the yeah. other film is the King and the Clown. It's a fascinating Korean. French cinema.
0: It actually grasped more than the Titanic in Korea. Really, wow. Well, now I was admonished in a uh, seminar that I was in uh, over sometime during the past eighteen months. I uh, participated in a Zoom seminar for not distinguishing. I was working working with the student uh, on um, a subject we were calling querying the queer in Twelfth Night, and I was uh, getting. We were getting into the thick of things, but I was I was admonished for not recognizing the difference between transvestite and transgender. So, how do you feel about this distinction? Uh, that ma- maintaining this distinction between uh, transvestism and trans. Uh, I, I, once I was admonished, I fully understood what what they were saying, and it had to it had to do with me trying to advise a student kind of new to all of this, uh, and me being somewhat, um, well, been poorly prepared to yeah, advise yeah. the paper, yeah.
1: This is uh, this is a simple but also complex question. Um, the vocabulary now is basically trans, sometimes trans with asterisks.
0: Mm-hmm. Sometimes
1: we spell out transgender, but uh, scholarly scholars increasingly use simply the short form trans, some mm-hmm. with asterisks, meaning including everything, gen- gender, um, gender-diverse experiences. So it could involve wearing clothes that are traditionally regarded as belonging to another gender. So mm-hmm. the, the, the term you use, transvestite, versus in a traditional interpretation of Viola, for example, um, she has transed, um sartorial choices and given, given themselves the name, Cesario and so on. So um, that, that's one reading. I, I was just proposing a possible different interpretation of that and saying, mm-hmm. what if Cesario is a trans man and so on? You know, from our modern perspective, for early modern studies, you can't exactly say which interpretation is right or wrong mm-hmm. because. The vocab in Shakespeare's time is very fluid, their practices as well. Um, and some would eroticize the boy actors even off stage. So that's all very well known history. Um, and the fact that Shakespeare wrote so many gen- cross gender roles, partly because they had these twins in the companies and they have boy actors who want to take advantage of that. Um, that's very distinct, in fact, in early modern history because we understand. Um, in the early modern, early modern period on continental Europe, women were not banned from the professional stage. In Italy, for example, that's where that's the origin of the narrative of Twelfth Night, where Shakespeare took inspiration, right? Um, women were allowed to play those roles. So it's a different world, but the limitations actually gave Shakespeare this excuse of becoming so creative and giving us these. Enigmatic dramatic situations and characters for us to ponder more. So, in terms of advising your students, I would say, um, "Friends" is just a broad category. It doesn't mean that someone's assigned a particular gender at birth, and later on they want to become the other gender. So, in other words, I think there are more than two genders. Some would, uh, as you know, um, I'm not sure in Japan. I think Japanese language would know this. In in American English, um, there are there are people who use they as a pronoun, the singular they. Um, yeah. so that can go under the category. So trans, in other words, does not simply encompass conventional ideas of trans men and trans women. Yeah. There are people who are non-binary, or perhaps they fluctuate. It, it depends. It's called fluid. Um and that's very important to note. So as so that we uh, recognize and support both. Binary trans practices, but also non-binary trans practices. I know it's funny to hear binary versus non-binary trans, but that's the that's where the field is going.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't want to get too much into weeds on the pronoun thing, but uh, this came up in uh, your presentation uh, for the um, World Shakespeare Congress in Singapore uh, officially where a scholar from the Philippines remarked on the diversity of languages within the Philippines and how pronouns are just not the same thing as they are in English or other Western languages. And there is, uh, I thought there was a little suggestion in what she was saying of there being a bit of cultural imperialism, you know, imposing uh, syntactic standards from your language onto uh, languages that are not as dominant uh, across the world. You see, we have to be careful about that because it's a two-edged sword sword this cultural imperialism thing if you're not careful you can come in too hard on the other side the progressive side um
1: precisely precisely and and I think um in gender studies race studies trans studies all of these embodiment fields really really need to go global um and to reflect um the particular and Context, often narrow context of their case studies of how they use language, um, and in fact, to acknowledge how these topics are discussed in different languages and different cultures. Yes. that's that's a big push right now. Nobody yeah. can master all of these, but I think it's, it it serves everybody's interest. For all of us to be a bit uh, humble to say, oh, I'm just limiting discussion to this particular and and, and yeah. to acknowledge, for example, the pronoun war. Right? It, it it it's a very it's discussed very differently in other in other languages, particular languages. Japanese language is it's very gendered, but not necessarily, not necessarily surrounding just the just the third person pronoun.
0: Yeah. No, I, I have no idea. Gender in uh, a different way. Unless a person contacts me in Japanese, unless they have a standard female name or standard male name, I have no way of knowing what gender they are. And that's led to some problems, uh, you know, in my polite response to the email. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm, but I don't have any problems in Japanese. It's just son you know, whether you're a woman or a man. So there there is there is gender distinctions on one side and then there are on other sides ambiguities. But let's move on to, you wanted to uh, talk a little bit about stage beauty. Is that correct?
1: So um, this is Nick Nistan playing the Desdemona on stage. Um, this film is all about reconstruction. And this is uh, this from, is from the, uh, stage beauty. Still.
0: Stage beauty. And that's the one we were watching before. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Stage beauty
1: the famous final scene of Othello. I would not kill thy soul. Talk you of killing?
2: I, I do.
1: What's the matter?
2: That hand, could that I so loved and gave thee, thou gavest to Cassio. No!
0: By my life and soul!
2: Ascent to the man and ask him! Down! Kill me tomorrow, let me live tonight! Nay, if you strive! But <laughs> half an hour! Being done, there is no pause. But while I say one prayer! It is too late! <laughs> oh, my good Lord! You're just...
1: As you can see, it's commanding no um, detention the star of the day. This is somewhat historically accurate how the how the Othello character wasn't the star of the show. They all came to see how Kinniston would do Desdemona. Um, as you can see, it's highly stylized, very exaggerated for um, the convention of restoration theater. The film um, its appropriation of the Othello material is interesting in the context of telling the life story of this historical adult boy actor, Ned Kiniston, his struggles after King Charles II lifted the ban um, on women performing. He's Mm -hmm. suddenly at a loss because he's you see competition, and so on. So it's really interesting in terms of historical discussion of the evolution of stage practices, what is taken for granted. It's no longer the norm one day um, things shift. The King and the Clown is a fascinating South Korean film that adapts a number of Shakespeare plays without acknowledging that it's Shakespearean inspiration. The King Here, falls in love with what some would call a female impersonator, the street actor. So behind him, you can see on the poster, two street performers. Uh, They and their troupe were invited into the court. And so they did various, um, they they put on various shows for the king. But the king is secretly enamored with Gong Ji, the figure to the right. Um, who is Ophelia-like, who doesn't have much agency. So I've been analyzing this work as an appropriation of a transgender Ophelia. Now, if we take a look at Pivotal Scene, we can see how South Korean cinema confronts gender issues. So this is the Gongji whose trajectory in the film parallels that of Ophelia but here she's in a street performance that partially adapts the narrative
2: of taming of the shrew <sighs> <sighs> 에? 저기 저 위에 핀 꽃이 대체 무슨 꽃인가? 매향이를 모른단 말인가? 오호 개성 최고의 기념 매향이라 그 자태 한번 요요만해 그려 이보게 내저 수작을 한번 걸어볼 터이니 그렇지. 장단 좀 넣어주기나 됐어! 얘가 어디라고 여기로 올라오냐 이놈아 저년 저저저 말보로쯤 보게 내가 이 대갓집 어르신이다 이년아! 쌍판을 보아하니 쌍놈이 분명한데 어디서 도포를 하나 주워있고 양반이라 하느냐 이놈아 눈깔 달아놓고도 못 알아보냐 이거사! 네 그럼 어르신네 걸음을 배줄 테이니 잘 보고 남의 집 서방하고 붙어먹다가 들켜 허겁지겁 도망가는 걸음을 배줄 테이니 니년도 잘 보고 있거라 어이! 어이! (목소리) 뒤질 줄 알았더니 제법이구나? 너 네, 이제 신나게 한판 놀아볼 것인데 내 줄타는 제주가 재주가 쓸만하거든! 오늘 밤 니년 재주는 한번 번 빼주거라! 아이! 아 이놈아, 아, 네 다리 사이 두 동네가 한 동네 되겄다. 두 동네고 한 동네고 간에 똥꼬가 쩌릿쩌릿한 것이 그냥. 오줌이 매라서 못 놀겄다. 아이 대체, 오줌이나 그냥 한판 싸고 놀란다. 그렇다면 나랑 한번 맞춰보자 이놈아. 옳거니 걸어. 내가 곧 가마.
1: So as you can see, a lot of banter, hamming um, rhetoric, very exaggerated. The Gongji actor character is actually very, um, very reserved off stage, but on stage she seems to be exaggerating in order to mark traditional femininity perhaps. So it's a very interesting and rich film. And as one watches, one will recognize the tropes of uh, love triangle in Twelfth Night a bit of revenge plot from Hamlet and coming
0: of the shrew that we've just seen. Excellent. That well if nothing else is cool. <laughs> it's just so performative yeah. uh and yes. just uh just wonder well now uh is this stuff are these films easily access accessed? do we have access to these films through uh any platforms that are out there?
1: Yes. And I, I believe they're very teachable. So Stage Beauty is uh it's quite widely circulated, available on DVD, uh, with subtitles, King and the Clown as well. I believe um the, this Japanese version, this Korean DVD with English subtitles. So um these are not obscure works. Um, as I mentioned, the King and the Clown is actually a hit in Korea. It came out on the heel of the countries uh legalization
0: yeah
1: legalization of um of gay identities so um it's kind of a decriminal decriminalization of 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 gay identity and people were celebrating the queer film as as um a symbol of that victory in south korea that film grossed far more than the film Titanic, which has a big size. So it's a huge success. It got a lot of people to discuss queerness, you know, gender, uh, cross gender performances. The, the actor who did that transgender Ophelia, the, the Gong Jin, he became very famous thanks to this role. So it's his debut work um, that fits very much into the flower boy discourse in Korea and in Japan singers and actors who um, identify as male, but prefer feminine presentation.
0: Mm, I see. Excellent. Well, uh, so that we can get through some of the stuff that you've done over the since I've spoken with you last, if we can move ahead a little bit here to uh, your work on screening social justice, performing reparative Shakespeare against vocal disability. And again, the idea of reparation in this article, uh, which came out from the journal Adaptation.
1: Yes. Um, so this came out in the Oxford Journal on Adaptation. I was analyzing... Films about Shakespeare that have disability as its theme, and in particular vocal disability, such as stuttering. For example, in Shakespeare in Love, if some of you are familiar with this Oscar-winning film, there's this funny character, the chorus, is actually a tailor. Um the, the troupe owes him so much, right? Costumes are really expensive. And this Taylor is an aspiring thespian, but he's not very good at speech. In fact, he suffers from stuttering, but the troupe has no choice but, but to allow him to join the performance, which becomes the point of tension in several parts of the film's narrative. So at the high stake performance, the premiere of Romeo and Juliet, Within Shakespeare in Love, our chorus comes on stage. He's supposed to deliver the famous prologue. Um, Two households both alike in dignity, and yet his 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 daughter is preventing him from from, from get from, from getting um getting the, the speech delivered smoothly. Um interestingly, I observed a pattern like in Shakespeare in Love and several other films. Once the character starts reciting Shakespeare, it's as if there's some magic in Shakespeare. Um the their ailment is cured is repaired, and so this chorus eventually becomes, um, is able to deliver, uh, overcomes the stage fright, even overcomes the stutter, and is able to deliver the the the, the prologue of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Um, not much attention has been paid uh, to small moments like this. Shakespeare in Love is not a film about disability. It is not Richard III. And yet, um, my point is to get, hopefully, that get people to start paying attention to these elusive moments where disability is presented, where Shakespeare, Shakespeare's words are used in creative ways, even if they're su- trying to suggest some kind of social reparation or perhaps critique the, ima- critique the fantasy of reparation. Um, I find that very productive and interesting. So I identified several films. Um, one of the high profile films that I have here is actually The King's Speech. The King's Speech was a 2010 film directed by Tom Hooper. Um, and it is a biopic that is based on Australian speech therapist, Leonard Logue's Diary and Notebook. Um, It draws frequently on Shakespeare for curative authority. And the film chronicles King George VI's effort to overcome his stage fright, um, obstacles for public speaking, as well as his stutter. So he works closely with this speech therapist to eventually, not quite overcome, but to to, to work with, to live with his vocal disability. And Shakespeare plays a huge role in this because the therapist in one scene um, makes him recite Hamlet's to be or not to be soliloquy. We see the king having this headphone over his ears with Mozart playing, so it's really loud. And he cannot hear himself. So the, the therapist is quite is onto something. He realizes stutter has to do with anxiety, has to do with you know the, this this uh, one's own disapproval of one's self image. When when you come hear yourself, you are less self conscious. So indeed, the king is actually fluent in reciting to be or not to be. Um, the king doesn't know it himself. Right, he's just reading the to be or not to be speech. Um, And interestingly, the the audiences are put in various contrasting audio perspectives. Sometimes we are in his ear hearing only Mozart. We don't hear recitation. Sometimes from the therapist's point of view. Uh, It's a fascinating film. It's not an... uh, straight retelling of any of Shakespeare's plays, but rather it's a film about disability that engage, engages with fragments of Shakespeare, including The Tempest. And our therapist himself is an aspiring thespian. He, in one scene, he went to an audition. He wanted to be Richard Third. At home, he would play Shakespeare games with his kids. He would re- recite lines from The Tempest and ask the kids to guess from which play it is. So um, it's, it's a very creative use of Shakespeare in the early 20th century context in terms of, in terms of um, the expansion and contraction of British Empire and what Shakespeare as an icon and what kind of role Shakespeare plays in that.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm going to record your voice and then play it back to you on the same machine. This is brilliant, it's the latest thing from America. It's a silver tone. There's a bob in this, mate. You could go home, Rich. You're playing music. I know. So how can I hear what I'm saying? Well, surely a prince's brain knows what its mouth's doing. You're not well acquainted with all the princes, are you?
1: He doesn't know how well he did. Yeah. In a later scene, he plays back the recording given to him by his therapist.
2: You're playing music, I know. Now, so how can I hear what I'm saying? Well, surely the princess Ray knows what its mouth's doing. They're not well acquainted with what the princess am to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and...
1: And that is why Elizabeth, who is equally shocked, pleasantly surprised, as if it's cured overnight. Of course, of course, that's not the case. It, it, it only works when he has headphones over his ears. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see the therapist is figuring something out. I find, um, I call films like this, reparative adaptations. So they are, they are working towards something that's reparative to the characters, to the society. They're looking for elements within Shakespeare because Shakespeare is so canonical, to, uh, to be repackaged, to be reused, to propose even if imaginary, some kind of solution. Um, and I'm seeing more and more of these kind of adaptations, especially since the pandemic, directors will go to someone Night's Dream and um, convert the politics from the woods into something that that can be inspiring. So kind of to inspire people into action.
0: Mm. Let's move on to another article that you, uh, well, not article, I'm sorry, uh, it's an addition that you are the uh, general editor of, along with Victorian Bladen, is that correct? Yes? Yes. Yes, on-screen allusions to Shakespeare, international films, television, and theater. Now, that's uh, quite an accomplishment there.
1: Thank you. This came out of uh, my collaboration with Victoria Bladen, who is based Mm -hmm. in Australia. We had a group of international contributors to write about a very peculiar topic. Film adaptations of Shakespeare, of course, it's it, it's a vibrant field, but we are paying attention particularly to fragments. So what happens when Shakespeare's plays or motifs or, or speeches are cited or pro, uh, uh, appro- appropriated um, in movies that are not Shakespeare films? For example, um, in in uh, James McTeague's crime thriller called The Raven from 2012, there is a play within a film, a production of Macbeth. And Lady Macbeth's lines are not fully audible in the film, but her performance in the mad scene um, adds an additional layer of significance to the film's main plot, because the film The Raven follows a serial killer who commits murders following Edgar Allan Poe's description in his stories. So as you can see, it's a a literary movie, and they insert a bit of Lady Macbeth. Our book sets out to explore the meanings of this. How do we understand, how do we make sense of this? This is beyond asking, is it still Shakespeare? But rather, I think, Why do these films quote Shakespeare in this way? Similar to The King's Speech, it's not a Shakespeare story, but Shakespeare's speeches play such a huge part in it. There are also accidental Shakespeare during the pandemic in 2021. um, I noticed a new film that came out um, by Miguel Sapochnik and it's called Finch. It's a post-apocalyptic film Um, in there. Shakespeare is deployed as a reminder of human civilization. Finch, a genius inventor played by Tom Hanks. um, He's the sole survivor uh, at the end of the world. He builds a humanoid robot and he brings the robot into a derelict theater to salvage food.
2: Never pass on the opportunity for your next meal, especially when you have a hungry dog to feed. Especially when you have a hungry dog to feed. Like like that theater there, you see the... Padlocks of the doors are still intact. They're still intact. That means whatever was inside is still inside. UV rays, hot. No. You said up there it's like Swiss cheese. I was locating the hey, cheese. this is not a joke. I
0: don't wear this UV suit for fun.
2: This is not a joke. I don't wear this UV suit for fun. Why are you imitating me? You said watch then imitate. Stop him. And- Not exactly. Finch. This is a play by William Shakespeare, a dramatic comedy about love, deception, and other human misunderstandings. Never really
0: care for the either.
2: We should consider giving you a name. I would like that very much. Yeah, how about Jack? No, Jack is a tool's name. How about William Shakespeare? Will you call me William Shakespeare? That's
0: taken.
1: <laughs> love the part where William Shakespeare is taken.
0: Is taken, yeah. You can
1: see where it's going. The, the robots is a poster, much ado about nothing. This is post-apocalyptic, new, no humans left, but kind of the present Shakespeare you can see. The, the word Shakespeare clearly shone on the marquee above the theater. The camera lingers uh-huh. there a number of times um, as a reminder of humanity. And and the robot even wishes to be named William Shakespeare.
0: William Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, what's the name of the movie again, the full name of the movie?
1: Then It's just one word. It's the name of the character Finch, F-I-N-C-H. F-I-N-C-H.
0: 2021. Yeah.
1: So it came up during pandemic.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, and this looks it. It looks, if nothing else, very funny. A lot of uh, irony and so forth in there. Right. And uh, for people listening on podcasts or whatnot, the uh, kind of uh, uh, (laughs) cute and cool robot, (laughs) non-threatening robot, Mm -hmm. Uh, at least at this point of the movie. I don't know where Mm -hmm. it goes. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Um, So these are just examples of the kind of films we study in this book onscreen allusions, we're talking about illusions precisely. So not, not a full retelling of Hamlet, but rather what is this citation of to be or not to be speech from Hamlet doing here in this narrative I and mean, how do they incorporate? And we believe it's, it's um, an area that has been understudied because most energy has gone into of course. Understandably studying full film adaptations of famous plays, but here um it's it's we found significant numbers, a large numbers of movies like like this that, that allude to cite Shakespeare, nothing more. And then they go on with their narrative. And our conclusion is that is that Shakespeare's canonicity invites this kind of citation, perhaps an anticipation of audience recognition, you have pleasure, when you recognize it, or perhaps to help um, lend legitimacy to to, to films. Um, And the other possibility is simply artistic pleasure, right, intertextuality, I'm creating a work, I am in conversation with another work that has been circulated um, for for centuries, and and that's, that's also an artistic impulse kind of to create this kind of dialogue
0: yeah uh that wonderful wonderful stuff and endless too uh particularly when you go across the globe i w- um, would imagine uh there's just well i know there's a lot of this in uh japanese popular culture and what um, a recent japanese critic called uh even uh, tacky tacky references he uh, picked up on the english term uh in uh, references to shakespeare in popular culture uh and uh okay let's move on then if it's okay you did uh, an article on shakespeare in a time of hate what a title yes teaching shakespeare in a time of hate
1: thank you for highlighting this um this is an article that lisa starks and i collaborated yeah and published in Shakespeare Survey. We wrote this in the dark days of the pandemic. It came out in 2021. Um, The theme of the Shakespeare Survey uh, in this particular volume is Shakespeare and education. And so our goal here, is to share strategies of building an inclusive classroom of of teaching Shakespeare in a more meaningful way especially now that pandemic has taught us a lesson a new a lesson or two right about privilege about inclusivity there are a lot of um, inequalities that were previously previously veiled by by campus life, so you don't tend to see it as much. But now that students have to do remote learning, that certainly shows who has access to high-speed internet and who doesn't. Um, They no longer have campus computer to to easily access resources, but also also the the, the, the pandemic um, inspired a lot of hate of the others. Um, who's bringing the virus, who is the virus, things like that. So very much kind of tense discourses about race, gender, sexuality, um, many difficult topics. And for my part, so we each propose different strategies. For my part, I propose something called radical listening. So radical refers to the root. Radical listening is a strategy for students to listen to the motivations, to the roots of actions of plots. Because one problem is um, people gravitate towards superficial. What happens? Just the plot. But here, with radical listening strategies, um, we we keep. Pressing the question of why do things happen? So people pay more attention to characters' motivations, um, even if unspoken, that, that's the key. It's not, it's not that something someone, it's not something someone declares. That that's of course obvious, but very often, especially in Shakespeare's plays, it's 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 undeclared. But you you pay attention to elocutionary speech acts, right? um what is implied, what what they really want. Maybe they're saying something else, but they want this, but they pretend to be saying something else. And that's really productive in terms of in terms of uh, decolonizing Shakespeare so that uh, students tend to come in with a preconceived notion of what Shakespeare is or can or cannot do or that Shakespeare is essentially white, things like that. But once we look at global adaptations and apply radical listening strategies, we can um, get them to do um, both close reading and distant reading, as you see on the screen here. This is a schema that I've drawn um, with close reading, obviously. You can look at a scene, look at a speech, write down some some what you think are the key words or the key themes, what we call tagging. Um, I I have students make clips to show which part they like, but not everyone has to do that. Um, We can share our our thoughts um, on the discussion board, uh, which will lead to distant reading, which essentially means taking a step back, taking distance, right? So no longer... You start from close reading, but then you can do distant reading to achieve some curatorial insight as if you're a museum curator to to look at a bird's eye view of the entire play or the entire issue, how it relates to our contemporary cultural lives. Um, And that can inspire new research questions. So that's essentially um, what we are trying to propose. We entitled it Teaching Shakespeare in a Time of Hate, because writing in 2020. The world was pretty dark um a lot of a lot of the ugly things reared its head
0: yeah a lot of ugly things reared their head and i think that whatever the stress the stresses that were uh, um, what uh, that we were put into positions as teachers as students as uh, just human beings living in the world is something that we had no training uh there was no manual for how to do it uh, there were uh mental uh mental health strains on uh on everybody but of course when you're around uh you're you're right in pointing out that just uh as you as you moved out it some people just kind of snapped there and yeah. and it just uh came out very badly uh and uh, it, it's, I hope there was a I, well I'm, I'm glad that you wrote on this because you point out again on a positive note that this is an, these are teaching and educational moments uh, and we can look back on and uh, sort through and see what this says about uh, the learning process and about ourselves as human beings
1: yes you said it so well I wanted to mention and um, advertise a free resource that I have built last year, and I hope uh, everyone can use it. This is a open access web-based interactive textbook that I wrote, um, uh, supported graciously by, by a grant from George Washington University. And it's called Screening Shakespeare. This is a film studies text, as much a film studies as it is a Shakespeare studies textbook. Um, you can see there are a lot of tiles. You can access it easily. Um, for example, what is a film? What is an adaptation? So each unit is very compact. There's a unit on social justice, um, and each one would be would have um, a section on definition, a section giving examples, and a section on exercises, such as music you have what type of film music we have i'll give you a lot of examples often shakespearean examples but also mingling in other films um, so as to expand students uh, horizon and you have final exercise a uh, final section on exercises i'll give an example for example for the lesson unit on music we are analyzing the music in the opening scene of bachelorette Romeo plus juliet um, and I provide answer key below, but you have to scroll a bit so that it's not immediately obvious. Um, So that's basically a textbook anyone can use. You don't have to use the whole thing. You can use only a segment. You can learn about me something, cinematography, sound and music, but also theory, adaptation theory, film theory, such as what is formalism? What is realism? Um, And the address is Screenshakespeare.org.
0: Okay, Screenshakespeare, one word, dot org. Yes. Uh, Well, uh, you are just so amazingly productive, and you have uh, done something that a lot of us, and it's affected me, too, uh were unable to do you've remained very productive during the pandemic period and uh seem to be coming out of this uh just um i, I would say better than you were but i hope that that's the way we all feel maybe in a year or so that we somehow have been made you know that which did not kill us made us stronger uh kind of uh thing you know th- 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 there should be this isn't all doom and gloom uh a lot of ugly things happened uh, but it's so wonderful to have someone who can find positivity in all of this on the series here. You helped us uh kick this thing off back when we had no idea what we were doing I, it, on my side. I uh, and uh, what I want to do is uh, uh, Debrief a little bit with you after we finish the recording, but I want to make sure that uh, you know that we greatly appreciate this. Me, my my uh, Japanese colleagues, and. Uh, also, our international viewers, which are more now than when you first came on, and uh, and so you'll get a, a little bit more exposure for this fine work that you're doing. Much of it collaborative, uh, global, and open, uh, open access, and um, and receptive, and reparative. Uh, Key word for uh, some of your recent uh, uh, theories. So, uh, Alexa, again, uh, thank you so very much for for joining us.